Hello and welcome to the February 14th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Anthony Bardoy, and I'm here with Romeo Kukratsky. Hey, friends. I hope you enjoyed our last episode about the villains of our podcast past, but now we have to snap back into the news. And this last week has not been a good one. We'll be starting the episode with the combat update, which will mostly focus on the battle for Evdivka, which has taken a very negative turn, at which then we'll go into, well, the reason why it is going so badly. The answer in America. Then we'll be going into a very serious reshuffle of the Ukrainian military, including the, the replacement of its top brass. And then to kind of soft land us on what will be a rough episode to listen to, there were some cultural updates, especially regarding Eurovision. So without any further ado, we'll now be getting into the combat update. So the first thing to talk about is the battle for the Black Sea scoring another win for Ukraine. The Corvette, the Ivanovets, was sunk on February 1st. Um, this, this ship in the Russian Navy, the Russian Black Sea Fleet, it had a bit of a history in that it did take a very active role in the seizure of Crimea back in 2014, including, you know, pictures and video of it taunting and harassing Ukrainian ships. So blowing that up was, was pretty good. It was also the subject of a media puff piece, I think you can call that, in the Russian media, talking about, you know, the pride of the Russian Navy and look how great we're all doing. So having that as the backdrop for then being destroyed and no longer able to shoot missiles at Ukrainian civilians anymore highlights the importance of also just the severe blow to the dignity of the Russian military that really this entire war has been, but especially the Black Sea Fleet. Their Navy lost their literal flagship. They've lost all like every ship that they were ever proud of or had bragged about is foundering at the bottom of the Black Sea. Yeah, I think we're now at a quarter of the Black Sea fleet now being destroyed. Not the exact number there, a very large percentage. Um, but this ship was blown up with the use of a naval drone. Uh, we've talked about this, these in the past when talking about this battle for the Black Sea. It is a speedboat with a bunch of explosives strapped to it and controlled uh, remotely. Uh, the video of this happening was made public. Uh, so the video that was strapped to the front of this uh, suicide drone as it kind of speeds past various defenses and the enemy trying to shoot at it until eventually got through the enemy defense and scoring its win. Uh, so the Battle for the Black Sea, once again, another serious victory. And the good news out of there was that in January, the amount of export, the amount of export that Ukraine did in this January was almost equal to before the full-scale invasion. The blockade has been completely destroyed. Shipping is going um, relatively safely with the help of you know insurance schemes and such like that, but that's an overall victory on Ukraine's part. Hello, editing here. So a new bit of news came out in between the time of recording and the time of release, which is that Ukraine sank another ship of the Russian Black Sea fleet, the Caesar Kunikov, a landing ship. This is the third of four of its type of the Black Sea fleet that have been destroyed. So another victory for Ukraine in the Black Sea. And back to the episode. But this next thing we're talking about is less um, optimistic, which is Evdivka. In recent weeks, 
the battle for Avdivka has begun to turn in Russia's favor. The last time I covered it, I said that there had been no real advances in the front line and that the front line around Avdivka had been more or less stuck in place for about a month or two with no serious changes. Well, that has changed. About a week ago, a week plus, the Russians began to break through um, both the southern part of Avdivka as well as around the center. The southern part came a little bit beforehand, a couple weeks, where a group of Russians did an incursion through the sewers of Avdivka in order to pop out on the other side of the Ukrainian lines and caused a collapse in in what's kind of a residential area, like private houses, in the southernmost part of the city. There had been some counteroffensives by Ukraine in this sector that were able to contain this breakthrough, uh, either including turning it back a little bit in some places. But with this next bit of news, it became much more worrisome, which was through the center of the city. There was... Uh, picture... Avdivka as a pretty narrow city. I've described this, I believe, in the episode before last, where it is a fairly narrow city on a northwest to southeast diagonal. In the northern part, there is the uh, coke plant, and in the southern part is the actual city, like the residential areas, um, houses, apartments, schools, grocery stores, etc. And the Russians were able to break through more or less in the meeting point where these two segments of the city are separated from each other. The breakthrough happened about a week ago, like I said, and has since progressed rather rapidly to the point where they have crossed through the residential areas in this part of the city. They were able to hit the railroad line that the entire city is kind of organized to either side of and were able to actually cross the railroad line, which is one of the most obvious uh, defensive positions that exist within the city itself. They are now trying to break through the final bits of the city in this part where the battle is currently happening around like railroad shipping infrastructure is the best way to explain it, as well as some houses. Once they do that, the city will be fully bisected between the north and the south. This is very bad news. So like I said, if you picture the city as being more vertical than horizontal, when I say that it is cut in half like uh, along this axis, it means that there's still plenty of routes in and out of the city in both of these sections. So there's ways to supply and um, retreat out of both segments of the city with only this small change in that one of these routes is now perilously close to the Russian advance. But what it means is that troops cannot easily go from the north to the south, and that makes defending the city much, much more difficult, to the point where the question of withdrawing from Evdivka will be coming sooner rather than later. We'll go into a bit what some of the factors in making that decision is a bit later, but just know that the decision is being made to stay or go. And I and the podcast in general tends to avoid making suggestions or um, too much long-form military analysis, because we're not military analysts. We can only say what is happening, not what will or should happen. But I'm concerned. I'm definitely... Uh, I don't want a repeat of Bakhmut. To recap a little about why Evdivka is important, and we've um, said this before in previous episodes, it's literally within 
um, basically walking distance of uh, Donetsk itself. Um, there's not a lot of space. It's a huge uh, needle in Russia's side that this uh, kind of tiny town, this Donetsk suburb, has remained under Ukrainian control since 2014. And it also presents Ukraine with territory needed to continuously push into Russian-held territory itself. It's incredibly fortified. Uh, there are tons of experienced units there. And it's just generally a like comfortable staging area if you need to attack these uh, the the outskirts of Donetsk and the settlements there. It's incredibly useful for that. And again, it simply keeps Russian forces pinned down. Uh, they the Russians need to spend a lot of um, personnel in order to fortify Donetsk, and they have to keep those people there. They can't move them anywhere. Uh, so it pins out pins down a significant number of forces that they would otherwise be free to uh, deploy elsewhere and make pushes elsewhere. And the the impact of pinning down this very noticeable uh, amount of Russian troops is not to be understated. Uh, while there obviously are not good um, civilian accessible estimates of the forces um, relayed in Donetsk, we can uh, definitely say that it is incredibly sizable and they would most likely like to not have uh, all of those troops there. They would probably like to have them um, somewhere else to take uh, ground or fortify other uh, areas. But as long as Ukraine holds Avdivka, as long as Ukraine um, continuously presents the threat that it can uh, go into Donetsk pretty much at will, the Russians cannot afford to uh, lessen their defenses there um, even for a little while. The loss of Avdiivka means that Ukraine will no longer have that opportunity. The Russians will not no longer have to fortify uh, Donetsk that much. It's not like they're going to leave the city undefended, but they will. They would need nowhere near as many men um, sitting in Donetsk with nothing to do. They would be able to use those troops um, anywhere else they'd like. Uh, earlier, I made the estimate that I thought that the offensive against Evdivka would go full force up until the point of the Russian presidential elections, which will, which will take place on March 15th through 17th. Before, I thought this was um, a very defensible goal for Ukraine to hold on for the next month. Now, I have very, very strong doubts uh, that the defense can hold out for that much longer in such a way that does not lead to serious casualties. But a force of reserves that are being sent to Evdivka to try to stemmy the tragedy there, and if not to reassert Ukrainian positions in the area, then at least stabilize it enough to have a, a successful withdrawal rather than a hazardous one. Uh, but again, the shadow of Bakhmut kind of looms over everything. Uh, many people think that uh, Ukraine took too long to withdraw from Bakhmut, uh, costing too much in the form of human lives. So that is definitely going into the decision-making process here in Avdivka. We'll have to see where it goes, um, if Russia can capitalize on bisecting the city, uh, if their southern advance goes any further. But it's just very very tense at the moment. One of the units being sent in to reinforce Mdivka is actually the third separate assault brigade. 
which is basically the new version of Azov, um, which has existed pretty much since uh, November 2022. Uh, they will they consist of some of the most um, combat capable and experienced soldiers Ukraine has in general. Uh, so a lot of hope is uh, riding on them. Yeah. So, but why did things go so badly so quickly? And the answer to that is they are extremely ammunition starved at the moment in Evdivka. The and pretty much the entire army and pretty much the entire army. But with Evdivka specifically, there are reports of say combat vehicles not hosting the full complement of crew. There are problems of just not being able to shoot shells. There's problems where, for example, some artillery uh, crews are firing smoke shells rather than actual explosive ones, just to have something going in the other direction. And that is mostly because of stalls in American aid. There has not been a proper shipment of American aid at all since December, and there has been no new pledges for aid since well into last year, with the Republicans going out of their way to remove it from any kind of spending bills. And now we'll go over what's going on in a second of the problems then. But because of this lack of aid, because of this lack of uh, American support for Ukraine, Ukrainians don't have the bullets and shells to shoot back at the Russians that are attacking them which is disastrous and a completely avoidable disaster if the Americans just, all they have to do is vote to send ammunition. And what's happening in Evdivka right now would not be happening. People will not be dying. The city of Evdivka is being leveled as we speak. Uh, it has been a serious target since the beginning of the war, but especially now, if you look at uh, aerial photographs of the city. Basically, every private house is now just a pile of rubble. Um, the apartments in kind of the city center are being heavily targeted. We are very soon to there no longer being an Evdivka left, just like what happened to Marinka, just like what happened to Bakhmut, just like what happened to any of another long list of names of places. And the exact reason for that is the American Republican Party. So that goes into our next segment of. What are the Republicans doing? So right now with the American budgetary process, there are three issues that are being tied together. That is funding for Ukraine, funding for Israel, and a, well, very draconian set of border policy changes, which we talked about at the uh, kind of New Year episode. These things have been shuffled along a lot, along with funding for Taiwan is thrown in there as well. But to, to describe every little shift in this uh, debate is going to be too difficult to do and mostly pointless. So let's just go over the state of play at this very moment, which is that the U.S. Senate, after a whole long list of amendments and uh, procedural votes and negotiations going one way or another, they were eventually able to pass a bill that would fund Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan as a package while leaving out the changes to the border policy as a separate uh, funding priority to detach these things. And after a 
rather pointless filibuster in the Senate by the Republicans to uh, kind of procedurally jam the bill from being passed, it did eventually pass. So in the U.S. Senate, as of the day of recording, they have approved funding for, for Ukraine. However, well, the Senate has approved about sixty billion. The Senate has approved sixty billion. Yeah, but it 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 unclogs the loggerhead at least. So, I generally speaking, in the Senate, there has always been room for more Ukraine funding. Um, and the biggest reason for that is just because the Democrats have control of the body. So the kind of hardliners, these kind of far-right hardliners, are not able to command as much in the Senate as they can in the House of Representatives. That's why voting matters. So we have J.D. Vance in the Senate, who is hardcore pro-Russia. Uh, so he tried, along with some others, Mike Lee, who tried to make passing this bill impossible. Uh, and they failed because they just don't have the votes on their side. Well, unfortunately, to some of the more optimistic viewpoints given in Ukrainian media and media space today, uh, America has two legislative bodies, not just one. The Senate, which is much more amenable to uh, Ukraine, is not the only decision maker here. The other half of this is the House of Representatives, and the House of Representatives is basically completely captured by the far-right faction of the Republican Party, and they have said no. There will be no new funding for Ukraine. Um, they demanded that the border changes would be part of a Ukraine funding bill. They're offered those border changes, and they still say no. Mind you, the, the border changes that were proposed were utterly obscene, inhumane, and um, quite frankly, fascist. They were uh, hard, just insane, insanely low hard caps on migration, a blanket denial of asylum claims that don't fit into the absurdly low quotas. It was an incredible give by the uh, Biden administration to the GOP, who rejected it because, as we've said repeatedly on the pod, um, the Republicans do not give a flying fuck about the border. They do not care about illegal immigration. doesn't matter how much they harp on it. They don't actually, this isn't something they actually care about. It's just a cudgel they use to win brownie points with their base. And it's also directly said multiple times that the reason why they're doing this is that they want the border to be a subject on the table for the elections. They've said it multiple times directly to the media on camera. So there's nothing that can be done with that. It is only a political ploy. So great. It worked out in the Senate. It won't work out in the House, barring some kind of political maneuver that I cannot even guess at right now. Unfortunately, what this means is that it's likely um, that Ukraine will continue not having USAID, will be continue have uh will continue having to uh ration our shells to go under shell starvation. Um I remember stories from the beginning of the war where artillery crews would be talking about the fact that they are only authorized to fire once, maybe twice a day um, compared to the Russians who keep up uh, basically near constant daily bombardments of 
with MLRS, with other artillery. I mean, it's not it's not even comparable. Um, they the Russians can just bomb the shit out of anything in range indefinitely. Uh, and for the time being, um, Ukraine doesn't have a good response. There's not really much that we can do about that to stop the Russians from using these shells. Um, we can't really even engage in counter battery fire. That is when you you triangulate the location of artillery from where they shot and then shot that spot, hoping to hit the artillery that was firing. We can't even do that because we don't have the shells for it. Um, infantry units can't call in for support. It's uh, and, and this is going to be the situation until somehow the the shell hunger problem is resolved without the without the U.S.'s involvement, since it's really not clear um, if the if aid from the U.S. will ever resume at this stage. I will say, though, that within recent weeks, there has been even more of positive signals from the European Union. I had mentioned this in my year-end um, kind of reflections and that support from the EU would be the game changer of this year, depending on what is able to, to take place. Um, the update there is that the EU aid bill to Ukraine, which Hungary was blocking, Hungary stopped its direct opposition to. Of course, Orban being Orban, he still had to be as much of a dick about it as possible by giving you know different comments in the media about how Ukraine has to be a neutral buffer zone between Russia and Europe, and it should surrender now. And the same things he always said, but that was just noise. What actually happened is they did what they had to do, which was pass through this uh, EU funding for Ukraine, which we had talked about as uh, something that was blocked, but able to get around through individual countries. So like an individual country could send money to Ukraine, uh, just not the EU as a total organization. That's what I'm referring to here. Now, the EU as an organization uh, is able to su supply aid. However, most of that aid is coming in the form of funding. The EU is not as much of a military production superpower as the United States is. Surprise, surprise. They do not have the capability to supply Ukraine with the kind of equipment that the United States can. Now, some of these issues were semi-looked at by starting up new chains of production in especially Bulgaria, but also Germany and some other places. There's new uh, supply chains for um, artillery shells, but those are still a long ways away from being fully operational. To give you to give you a sense of how far away um, these things are, um, there are stories that literally just came out yesterday about um, Germany and Denmark only beginning construction of a new ammo plant. That is, they've gotten the land and they are breaking ground. Um, if anyone has any experience with constructions of any kind, uh, they're probably going to be aware that this process from actually planting the first shovel in the ground to having a functional factory is a multi-year long process and not just one or two. Uh, so there is not very good odds for uh, Europe to be able to ramp up their um, shell production, especially within any real time frame that will matter to Ukraine. However, the fact they are providing money is important in that a lot of this um, 
kind of Soviet-style ammo that Ukraine uses for most of its artillery pieces were purchased from third countries. Uh, some of these countries are made public, such as South Korea. Some of these are not so public, including at least one African nation, as they refer to it as. Uh, so there's a lot of arms purchases being done throughout the world that can be done with EU aid. They just don't have the weapons on hand themselves so much for Ukrainian needs anyway, like America does. But moving on to another incident with the American right wing in Russia, and that is Tucker Carlson, everyone's favorite far right white supremacist news anchor in the U.S., you say news uh, former, anchor. Call him a propagandist. News a propagandist. Anchor. The man's never read a news story in his goddamn life. A culture warrior, annoying, little Nazi asshole. Uh, formerly of Fox News, currently of Tucker Carlson Babyface Goebbels. The canned soup oligarch princeling went to Russia to tell the world, as he says, the Russian side of the story, which apparently no one's ever heard before. I mean, yeah, if you don't ever listen to Russians, read any of their media output, watch any of their television, or interact with them as a real existing thing at all, then then yes, they've never said any reasons for why they invaded Ukraine. It's a mystery and no one knows. Yeah, so he goes to Moscow, is treated as a celebrity. They the Russians fawn over this guy. Because, yeah, to you a know, really uh, kind of absurd degree. They were taking pictures of him, like, going to the supermarket. Look, Tucker Carlson goes to the supermarket. To say, because especially our, our Western members of our audience are probably unaware, Tucker Carlson is not only popular in the U.S., sad as that is. He is also incredibly popular in Russia. He was relatively popular in Ukraine. On YouTube, people will provide both dubbed and sub versions of his shows within hours of them coming up. I've seen just a random people on the bus watching Tucker Carlson. And even on some like Russian news broadcasts, like channel uh, Russia One and all that, they would take Tucker Carlson broadcasts, dub them into Russian and play them on their own channels. He's a big deal because he is you no know, the American telling telling the world the the pro-Russian story. Like and here's the thing about Russia that I think is really being left out here. They have a massive inferiority complex. For a country as large, as wealthy, and as um, politically domineering as Russia, they have a very provincial attitude as far as culture goes. Even though, you know, like Metallica played there <laughs> during the fall of the Soviet Union, like they attract big celebrities, but something about it is they feel odd that nobody cares about Russian produced culture. So whenever um, like foreign culture, particularly American culture pays attention to them, they go into full fangirl mode. Like it is disgusting how much they fawned over this guy for that reason is, you know, an American uh, saying that like their feelings are correct. That's all it takes. And that has been the key to many uh, complete losers who have gone to Russia, um, acted like Russia was the coolest thing in the world. And because they were one of, you know, a dozen people doing that, that's where they're able to have a career from. See, you know, Amos and 
a, a whole line of people who who filled that grift. And so Tucker Carlson being what used to be the biggest, like the highest rated person in cable uh, cable news um, for a while there, it danced around between Tucker Carlson, I think Fox and Friends sometimes had higher ratings than him, but, but the biggest individual name in American news media going to Russia was a huge, huge deal for them. So what what actually happened then is that he met with with Putin. Now wait, wait, wait. You you watched the entire you watched the entire interview, right? I couldn't put myself through them because I can neither. I absolutely did. Stand, I absolutely did. Yeah, I, I, I can't then, stand either Putin's voice or Carlson's voice. So um for medical reasons, I could not watch the interview. But t- t- tell us a little bit about how the interview itself went. Yeah, well, thankfully, I hate myself and feel that I don't deserve happiness. So I watched this interview. I'd say the overall analysis of it is that Tucker was completely unprepared for what he was going into, despite the fact that he has spent the last two plus years as the Russian propagandist par excellence in the United States. It seems like he's never listened to a word Putin has spoken or a word he has written in his entire life. Because that's overall not surprising, given what not surprising one knows of Tucker Carlson. <laughs> he is a complete hack and a fraud. Um, fun, fun fact about him is that he began his career because uh, he was some kind of support staff during the some local news. He was support staff while the OJ Simpson case was being covered. Dan Rather needed someone he could talk to on air about the case. And they kind of asked the office. Um, and Tucker said, yeah, I'm an expert in this. I can talk. He was not an expert. He didn't, he knew nothing. He wrote a memoir about this admitting he knew nothing. So I guess career advice, just show up and show up. You don't have to know anything. Get lucky. First step A is get lucky. Um, have someone pick you out of line. Uh, don't ever know anything about what you're talking about. Um, because if you know things, you can be wrong about them, but if you don't know things and you just say things, then whoever tells you you're wrong um, is attacking your opinions, which gives you the right to, to you know, attack them back and go off. Um, however, if you make a factual statement that is incorrect uh, because you were misinformed, uh, then you're just stupid. So get lucky. Don't know anything. Attack anyone who criticizes you. The three steps have, to media success. And have zero shame whatsoever. Shame is. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's, that, that, that's kind of like a necessity. Yes. Yeah. So that's how his career by, began by just making stuff up and pretending to know things that he doesn't. And that's where he is right now. So basically, if you know Putin, if you've listened to Putin speak or read anything he's written, you would know that he is a very long-winded person about very silly topics, especially history. He likes to go with made-up history. So the first about half hour of this interview, it opened up with Tucker saying, like, why did you do this? And what's now a meme is it all begins in the year 1883 when Prince Oleg named his success. So the thing is, so... First off, if yeah, if, Romeo, you you have Soviet boomer relatives. Explain I have to the Soviet audience boomer what Soviet relatives, boomer. Um, and they they like to have banquets. So it was a big the big thing in the, in the during the USSR because you didn't have 
really, you didn't really have like clubs or bars or parties or whatever. Um, and especially the intelligentsia, which was the the kind of like the Soviet version of the upper middle class. Um, obviously, they considered like going going somewhere and getting drunk to be uh, very crass and, and the low status. So instead, they had banquets. Uh, and at these banquets, obviously, you have a bunch of food. There's a bunch of liquor, and everyone is expected to talk about very important things. And the number one thing that a, a person likes to talk about at the Soviet banquet is to regurgitate half remembered pieces of pseudo history and then use that to justify uh, whatever decision their favored political figure has made. Uh, this is just a like top tier banquet activity. Uh, if you've spent any time at these banquets and you eavesdrop on any given conversation, I guarantee you it's going to be some half remembered pseudo historical bullshit um this is like it's not weird that he went off on this tangent because that's what those people did that's what those people do even now <laughs> Uh, they'll make up some crazy shit about Mongolia or whatever and just go off um, for hours at a time and uh, it seems like that's exactly what Putin was doing another kind of interesting aspect to this whole thing is in Russian, there is literally an idiom called uh, to, to talk about Rurik um, as a, it, the expression means to like talk about something old and unrelated. Uh, that is, it is again, a literal idiom. <laughs> now, Anthony, what did Putin say about uh, Prince Rurik, uh, Rurik of the Kievian Rus? Yeah, I'd like to go back to Rurik. So it's basically a long argument that Russia has always controlled, or Ukraine has always been Russia since the early medieval period. And it was never anything other than Russia until a conspiracy by first the Polish nobility and then the uh, Austro-Hungarian um, administrative class to brainwash Ukrainians into believing that they were something different from Russians. So the theory goes that uh, these people were all just Russians until, you know, they were tricked. And because of that, uh, Russia is simply reclaiming its lost territories. Um, the argument was entirely, if you take the two-hour-long interview, if you boil it down to its very essence, the singular argument that could be made was that Ukraine does not exist, Russia is reasserting its imperial authority, and that Russia feels very humiliated and slighted that the West has continually made that more difficult for them over the last 30 years. And to be That's honest, it. that is an honest assessment of um, Russian motivations. I think people, and this is this doesn't um, only relate to Ukraine; relates to a lot of things. People like to overcomplicate things. Um, they like to pretend that there are some deep, fundamental uh, reasons for taking this and, and or that act. When in reality, a lot of it just comes down to resentment. Um, Putin is being honest when he says that Russia resents the fact that the West won't give Russia back its empire, which it rightfully deserves. This is. An incredibly common Russian sentiment that they've held for literally their entire history. Uh, he's simply being honest. It's not an argument I think that many people would agree with if they aren't Russian, aside from perhaps Tucker Carlson. 
Speaking of which, how did Tucker Carlson react to Putin's long-winded historical explanation? With utter confusion. He had a stupid look on his face the entire time. He often has a stupid look on his face, but in particular, for this interview, he would keep like interrupting and say, like, but how does that relate to what's happening now? At which point Putin would say uh, something along the lines of, I'm telling you, give me time to say this. I'm being serious right now. So not only did Putin say, like, his whole argument for why the war is happening, but also was very, very um, assertive that anything that Tucker wanted to butt in with was wrong and stupid, and he should be humiliated for even suggesting it. It was so direct that it was stunning that people still, in the, in the aftermath of the interview, still tried to bring up all these other arguments about NATO or, or whatever. Because Putin had so assuredly made it very clear that this was about imperial reconquest. He made a very long argument for why imperial reconquest was good. And mind you, it's not like Carlson disagrees in general, in principle, with the whole imperial reconquest. He simply wants to sell it in, uh, in a different light, because again, for most people, even for much of the right, just outright saying we deserve to own uh, these people as slaves is still considered just a tad passe. Give it a few years, maybe that'll change. But at the moment, still a little gosh. Yeah, so throughout these last two years, Tucker Carlson has couched his support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine through basically a bunch of hired United States culture war tropes. Russia is, you know, a good conservative Christian country that was defending its traditional values from the liberal West. And that's why the war was happening. So they're defending themselves from LGBT rights. They're defending themselves from feminism. They're defending themselves from basically pick a list of the things that the American right is mad about. And Russia was protecting them from the evils of liberalism. And throughout the interview, he did try to interject some of this. Um, so for example, one of the key issues here is about, uh, the Russian Orthodox church, which we talked about ad nauseum in different ways throughout this podcast series. And so at one point goes on about, you know, protecting what it means to be Orthodox and Tucker says, well, what does it mean to be Orthodox in that Putin was supposed to say something about trans bathrooms or something. Traditional values. Family, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But what he actually said was basically just raw ethno nationalism. <laughs> like, what it means to be Orthodox is to be something different from the West. That's basically what it came down to. Orthodoxy is something more mystical and less practical than the Western mindset. He did not actually mention religion in that. He just said Orthodoxy was anti West, more or less. I mean, again, this is likely a true answer from Putin. Putin being a Die in the wool KGB guy. Actually, that reminds me that he he'd made a joke at Tucker's expense. Tucker had reportedly applied for the CIA once and gotten rejected. Uh, and Putin made a joke about it at Tucker's response. They're a serious organization, if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, but uh, again, Putin was likely being honest about that. As as a very dyed in the wool KGB guy, he he legitimately um doesn't respect religion or uh, the, the entire concept of it, uh, he likely has typical Soviet materialist beliefs, uh, and he probably doesn't really want 
to draw attention to to the fact outside of stage propaganda ops. Yeah. And the other example I can think of is that part of the Tucker Carlsonian uh, argument for supporting Russia is that they basically want to do a redo of the Sino-Soviet split of the 70s uh, when China and the Soviet Union became enemies of each other. The idea is to have that happen again, only this time America will take the side of Russia in the conflict against China. Utterly ridiculous, but Tucker tried to get Putin to say something about it in response said, no, we love China. What are you talking about? So every talking point that Carlson is used to was shot down in response, got the Soviet boomer ranting about pseudo-historical nonsense about why destroying Ukraine is good. In the aftermath, you know, we had a bunch of far-right media figures talking about how, oh, what a brilliant interview this was. We got the real story. Can't you believe that a rural leader is able to talk for two hours straight about his country's history? Stupid, stupid, stupid for all the reasons we just talked about. It's just an old guy ranting. Stop being so impressed. Luckily, this um, interview probably had, uh, probably does have a civil, uh, silver lining. In that it's not good propaganda. It's it's not good television, first off, which is the 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 main thing you want for propaganda. Propaganda, first off, before any messaging or anything, it has to be entertaining, it has to be good television. Um, it wasn't entertaining because Putin's not a very entertaining speaker, to be honest. And it doesn't carry a lot of propaganda value um for Tucker or even for Russia. A Western audience, um, specifically Tucker's uh, Nazi audience, is going to be a little confused by all of the, the weird historical things because, again, they have no emotional interest in this conflict. They don't really give a shit uh, what Russia claims or does not claim to own or does not own. Um, so those reasons just fall by the wayside. Whereas for a domestic audience, um, they heard the same thing that their president says at every public showing anyway. So there was no no new propaganda to really mine. Uh, and for Carlson himself, uh, his probably what would have been the, the biggest, um, most known uh, interview that he's had for his entire career, maybe the apex of his career, just turned out to basically be a blowout. Uh, so from that from that perspective, I'd like to say that uh, I think the interview was good and went great. Everyone involved should be proud of themselves. The only the thing there is that it was I, I believe it was timed to go alongside the current policy debate happening in Washington and trying to you know rally the troops together. It did not seem to have that effect for the reasons you just said. <sighs> but it it does it does make me kind of want to revisit. Uh, Putin's essay from before the war laying out the historical argument for it just because it's a good uh, structure to build around basically the perverse view of history that Russia has. I might want to do something with that in the future, but otherwise, dumb interview by dumb people interviewing other dumb people for the benefit of dumb people. So moving on to what I think is the biggest story currently happening in Ukraine by a pretty wide margin, which was that the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces, Valery Zeluzhny, was replaced by Alexander Sirsky. This was a very big shock to the system. Zeluzhny, as we've been talking about him on this podcast, has been something of a hero figure. Um, he's looked at as basically the embodiment of the Ukrainian armed forces, and 
I talked about in our elections episode that if he ever decided to go into politics, he'd have a very good shot at it. And I think that comment that I made about him going into politics may have been uh, in a reflection of the feeling in Ukraine for why he was likely replaced in that he was getting too big for his boots. And that's a very popular theory. Um, we, we don't actually know the reasons uh, behind his dismissal. Uh, the Zelensky administration didn't even really explain why they decided to go this way. Um, obviously, there are always leaks and uh, rumors and gossip. I typically don't pay much stock by this, uh, but it doesn't take a genius to see that Zelensky's popularity may have at some point caused um, a problem for Zelensky politically down the road, though. Personally, uh, folks, I don't see the reason to care about politics when we will not have elections as long as the war goes on for however, who, who knows how long, um, at which point I really doubt Zelensky is going to run for office again. Um, so I personally don't really put a lot of stock to this. Personally, I think the reasons behind Zelensky's dismissal have more to do with the uh, stalemate, miscommunication, and um, failed uh, 2023 counteroffensive, uh, really, than than any political consideration. Yeah, Zeluzhny is definitely considered a hero among the troops, which Sersky is considerably less seen as. He's not have a fantastic reputation among the average fighter. But honestly, within this we'll, last we'll, year— We'll provide more— um, a more detailed profile of Sersky in a later episode. Um, but I think it is fair to note that he, it, he is a very Soviet military man um, with all of that, in, uh, with all of what that entails um, to a level that's even greater uh, than Zeluzhny himself. He is a little bit older. So he went through more of the Soviet education system than Zeluzhny would have. So that's a factor. And he actually went through his, he, he delusionally went through his military training already after independence, whereas Sersky went through Red Army training and commanded Soviet troops, which Delusiony never did. Yes. Yeah, so, but at this, I'd say the narrative right now cast around, you know, social media is that Zeluzhny and Sersky are uh, real counterpoles, have some kind of rivalry or something, even though in public they've been quite supportive of each other. Even Zelensky, when removing Zeluzhny, offered, gave him the Hero of the Ukraine Award. He, they're making this in public as uh, positive and conciliatory as possible. And there's not been too many hints that Zeluzhny, Zeluzhny and Sersky have had a public falling out in any way. The explanation as such as was given is that Zelensky wanted to have basically an entire reshuffle of the command of the Ukrainian armed forces, considering some of the failures and setbacks of the last year. And this is just a part of a general kind of shuffle around. That's like the official story of what happened. And because that shuffle has not fully happened yet, there have been some commanders put into different positions. Some people have been fired. Some people have been moved somewhere else. Some people have been promoted. That has not finished happening yet. So we do not want to give like a real analysis of what that fully means, just because it's still very much in the process and very behind closed doors. So there will not be very many public hints until all is said and done. The main factor here, I think, is where Zeluzhny will go. 
he's not going to be retired. He'll be put into some other command that we don't know quite yet. And so I think the big question is where he goes, wherever that is, that's where you have to pay attention to. At the same time, I also I, I do want to note that the kind of degrees of freedom that these generals have is a lot less than you than can be imagined. Um, personally, I feel that material concerns probably constrain uh, decision makers to a very narrow band of options. And there's not going to be too much of a difference between Zaluzhny's command and Sersky's as long as we have shell hunger, as long as we have uncertain support from the West. I think those factors enclose uh, the available options uh, for Ukrainian military leadership more than anything else. And there is a lot of collective responsibility and collective decision-making. Sersky was commander of the ground forces, which is pretty much the almost the entirety of the military. The, the naval and air component of the Ukrainian armed forces are very small compared to the ground component. So their official duties overlapped nearly one-to-one anyway. Um, with the exception of Sirsky being the commander of kind of the Donbass uh, grouping of troops. And that is really the thing that is coming up the most in when it comes to worry about Sirsky is that he was in command for the Battle of Bakhmut. And like I said, during our discussion of Avdivka, there's a lot of concern that he did not pull out of Bakhmut fast enough to conserve forces as much as what could have been done. So there's some concern that he'll make the same decision in Avdivka um, hold out for too long, essentially. So that's the only immediate question that we're seeing that's not 100% speculative. But like we said, we do not have the full information of what the new version of the military looks like, and we do not know where Zeluzhny especially is going, so we can't give uh, too much about that. Once we do know, we will give that along with a more thorough biography of Sersky. He's an interesting enough guy. As as much as um, he's criticized for Bakhmut, uh, I think it bears remembering that he was uh, the brains behind the Kharkiv counteroffensive um, in the liberation of most of Kharkiv Oblast. Uh, so there's a there, there's a lot to go into, and, and we definitely will cover him in uh, in an episode uh, very soon. The one thing that we do know about this military reshuffling, though, which I find very interesting, is that the Ukrainian armed forces is going to create an entirely new branch for drones. Uh, so for the development of drones, the deployment of drones, working closely with the uh, Ministry of Digital Transformation, which has kind of spearheaded the whole drone issue in Ukraine, which gives recognition that this is an uh, extremely important Part of Ukrainian strategy is to procure more suicide drones, reconnaissance drones, naval drones, like the the one that uh, shunk, sunk the uh, Russian Corvette uh, in February 1st. Drones, drones, drones. It's very nice that it's being given its own uh, command. And what's especially important there is that for a lot of what has been going on, individual units will have to get funding and buy their own drones. So on social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, word of mouth, a lot of this has become, please donate to our um, squad, our platoon, our company, because we need to buy some drones to use. And it's been a very kind of individual um, kind of effort. 
and recently the shift has been to make it more based on government funding, more based on government organization, which ultimately is what is needed. Um, for example, there has been a recent program where people can sign up for training on how to build drones. So you can build your own drones to be sent off uh, to the front to be used. So that's just an example of the innovation that's happening right now with that on one hand it is innovation on the other hand it's sort of absurd uh the fact is that the military has failed uh or rather i would say the government has really failed to uh properly change the regulations governing military purchases to allow the central government by extension the military to simply purchase mass amounts of drones um the it's very difficult to get a, a drone even a domestically produced ukrainian drone on the list of approved drones for military use, uh, which is why so many units have to fundraise uh, for these things with their own money and their own time and energy, uh, because the military will not allow them, uh, will not provide them with the equipment uh, that they need. Hopefully, this drone force will be able to smooth that process significantly. I am pretty optimistic about that. It shows uh, that a very serious priority that demands its own independent decision making a body within the military to do these things. So, but we'll see how, where that goes. Anyway, so most of this episode has been rather depressing. Um, we kind of had fun at the expense of Tucker Carlson, but the context that was happening in was the cutoff of American aid to Ukraine and the disastrous consequences that that led to. So, and I personally would not want to see more people trying to ape Walter Duranty which you wrote an op-ed on, actually. Oh, so yeah. I've begun to bring that up. NV, go read it. Yeah. Wrote an end, uh, article, NV, comparing Tucker Carlson to Walter Durante, the head of the New York Times Bureau in Moscow during the Holodomor, who was a Stalin apologist. I think it's a good read. Go for it. Yeah. Good article. So, give, give, it, give it a read through. Um, but it's not great that these things that these things happen, that these people continue to exist. Uh, but hopefully we can end on a little bit of a brighter note. Yeah, so here's some cultural topics for you. Culture topics are always good to talk about. The first of these is that on Unity Day, so in Ukraine, there's, um, you know, going into history, the day that the West Ukrainian Republic and well, the Ukrainian you see in the Republic, year 886. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, it was the year. So, in the year 1919, in what was called the Unification Act, the West Ukrainian People's Republic and the Ukrainian People's Republic merged into a single government. The West Ukrainian People's Republic getting independence from Austria, while the Ukrainian People's Republic getting independence from Russia. And as World War I happened as it did, which is an entire podcast series, it ends with Ukraine merging into one state. And a whole lot of stuff happened after that. But point being, Unification Day is the day commemorating that moment on January 22nd, 1919. So on the occasion of this Unification Day, Zelensky announced a new decree called On the Territories of the Russian Federation Historically Inhabited by Ukrainians. Now, in the Russian Empire... Uh, there was Ukrainians were what the second largest ethnic group, and the territory on which they lived was considerably larger than the present country of Ukraine. Uh, if you look at Belgorod region, if you look at just 
north of Chernihiv into Belarus. Um, these were all areas that were majority to plurality ethnic Ukrainian, as well as Kuban, uh, which is uh, in the southern part of the Russian Federation and the North Caucasus. There are also a lot of Ukrainians who were part of the settlement of Siberia. So there was a Siber uh, Ukrainian majority areas in the north of Kazakhstan, and especially in the Far East, uh, in basically the part of Russia now bordering China, uh, called the Far East region. That was at one point known as Green Ukraine, because most of the people living there were Ukrainian, the point where the local dialect of Russian spoken in the Far East of Russia carries heavy influences from Ukrainian language, as does the quote-unquote southern dialect of Russian spoken in Kuban and places, because they all used to be Ukrainians until they were Russified. So there's all these areas of the Russian Federation that historically had a lot of Ukrainians in them. And unlike Russia, Ukraine does not consider this a reason to invade anyone. Ethnic revanchism is not real. Like you can't, that's not a basis for invading other countries. Ukraine has never claimed any of those places as part of Ukraine. However, Ukrainian culture did exist to some extent there. There have been interviews with like old people who live there that would say like, oh, well, uh, my father, my grandfather was Ukrainian, but then they told us that we're all Russians. So I guess we're Slavs now, like that kind of thing. Identity is complicated, but the reason for this decree was basically to give uh, support to academic and cultural works to try to remind people that these areas also are part of Ukrainian history as well. Um, that doesn't really mean much outside of symbolic, though there has been some ways that this has been talked about as it could smooth over some other ideas. Uh, in an article in the Kiev Independent, they brought up how this decree could smooth over uh, the citizenship process of Russians from these areas, including talking to like a Ukrainian cultural activist from the from southern Russia, from a land that used to be majority Ukrainian for you know like a good hundred years, who has been in Ukraine, has been, you know, supporting the army against Russia, supporting the country against Russia, and hoping that it would basically make the case for her to get citizenship more easily than she was able to. So who knows what kind of uh second order things could come from it. But very declaratively, not saying that these lands should be part of Ukraine, just that to they'd have a Ukrainian history that should be remembered. And our final culture topic is that favored of contests everywhere, Eurovision. Now, personally, folks, I am not a big Eurovision guy. I grew up in America. What can I tell you? It just was not really a thing. I don't really watch Eurovision. I don't really listen to Eurovision. Um, I think the only Eurovision song I can remember off the top of my head was one uh, was by a Lithuanian jazz singer like two or three Eurovisions ago. So I'm <laughs> I'm not really up to date with the latest uh, Eurovision goss, as it were. But I can tell you that Ukraine has uh, selected its choices to go to Eurovision uh, this year where it is favored, actually, uh, to win once again. In the betting pool right now, it's actually like top five, according to some places. Who is Ukraine sending to Sweden? So it's actually two of the biggest pop singers in Ukraine. It's Aliona Aliona and Jerry Heil. 
They're very, very famous here. So Eleona Eleona does have an attachment to Eurovision in that she was a judge when it was hosted here. Uh, Ukraine has, I think, the third most successful country in Eurovision by different measurements. Ukraine does well. So it's always a big story when it happens because the odds of Ukraine winning are always pretty high or at least getting into the finals. It's considered one of Ukraine's big cultural exports is uh, Europop singers. The actual Eurovision contest is set to take place in early May, so I'll be watching. I don't think Romeo will be watching, <laughs> but I will uh, likely not be watching. Likely not be watching. I will, along with most of the rest of the country. But we'll we'll see how it goes. I I feel good about it. Although I do have to say that during the national selection, the audio on stage was really weird. Like it was, the acoustics were off. So it gave me not the strongest impression of the song, but then when I watched it on YouTube and like the actual version with proper acoustics, I think it sounded better. So hopefully the the stage presentation in Sweden will turn out better. But that closes off this episode, a higher note. I would just like to say, if you would like to support Ukraine more broadly, the number one thing to do as an American right now, all your representatives, lobby your representatives, Get people to support the vote in the House of Representatives to give funding to Ukraine. It is of the utmost importance right now. The Republicans are stonewalling it and needs to be broken through. And ultimately, all it takes to break through that wall is five to six Republican votes in the other direction to join with the Democrats in voting in favor of Ukraine. Possibly more if there are Democrat defectors over the Israel issue, but that's more complicated. It doesn't take too many Republicans. Help flip them. Also, look at our links. There is uh, the link tree of different Ukrainian charities and information sources, as always. I'll also be linking my op-ed in Enva. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please tell your friends, your family, get word out about it especially considering the political situation, as I just described, there needs to be more voice of what's happening in Ukraine in the political process in the United States, because the political process in the United States is flat out lying about the situation in Ukraine, what Ukrainians want, what will keep Ukrainians alive. Now more than ever, we really need to get the word out about Ukraine. If you'd like to support this podcast financially, go to patreon.com slash Ukraine without hype. And join one of our tiers. I recently put out a quick video to beta test future video content for Ukraine Without Hype and join our Discord server. I would now like to thank our patrons for making this all possible. So thank you very much to Devora Grazer. The voices in my head are from Big Pharma, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana Kokoryatskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Dennis Napalm, Devi, Dimitri Litvin, Etienne, James Burke, Jan, Yanara, Jenny Louise, Kevin Alberton, Marguerite, Michael Wickman, Mike Perone, PLM, Shieldwall, Ellis Frank, T. Bart, Vivek, Adam Poppenheimer, Ada McDonald, Alex Grochmel, Anastasia, Barbara, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Bavona, Francois, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jared Bradley, Jert, Julia Lindsay, Laura DeLeon, Levy Grove, Marianne, Matt Miller, Melissa Caselco, Anonymous, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, RDK, Sanjay, Scott Berry, Scott Gengris, Scott Tarkayuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, Subtle Knife, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica, and Veronica, Victoria Leontaneva, and Wandering Lens. Thank you all very much for your support. So until next week, 
Slava Ukraini. Three, three, three.